Welcome to episode 20 of Political OD. Uh, we thought we'd get together and talk about some of the stories that seem to be setting the tone uh, for some of the debates uh, that might occur over the coming weeks. Uh, and I think we have to start with Biden and the inauguration, which seem to dominate all our news channels. Yes, David, I think this is quite a strange phenomenon, just quite how obsessed we get with, um, with American politics, because, I mean, obviously... Yes, it's it's relevant. The United States is a, a huge presence in world politics and it will form a background to everything that happens over the next few years. But people almost get uh, so involved that you would think that it's their own political struggle. And uh, there, there's this kind of sense that people are more engaged in it almost than they are in, in British politics or, or Northern Irish politics or wherever they happen to be from. Certainly, um, they're more interested in it than, than sort of equivalent um, political scenes in Germany and France and, and in places that are quite relevant as well. So I personally was not one of the many millions who watched this inauguration yesterday. I'm interested by the politics of it. I'm not that interested in watching Lady Gaga, if I'm perfectly honest. Well, I find the thing a bit odd on the basis that you know, we have a president coming in, largely speaking, talking about uniting America and projecting America forward to the world. But this was a man who spent most of his election campaign in a basement. And then despite standing up for democracy, he was standing up for democracy with 25,000 troops around him. Uh, and I find that a bit of a juxtaposition and not really a sense of a strong, confident America moving forward. I mean, not, not again, not sort of pretending any expertise about it because it's not our political scene, but it does seem to me that it's still a very divided country. And I'm not sure that Biden, while he would like to sort of present himself as, as this healer who's going to bring people together, I'm not sure that that's how it will turn out. And particularly, you know, we've heard a bit of about the composition of, of his administration that he seems to be, you know, going up very much down the kind of social justice route and even not from a strictly kind of political point of view we've got this backdrop of uh, censorship by big tech and um, Trump being put off Twitter for a couple of quite, quite innocuous tweets even uh, if you're not a fan of Trump which I know certainly I'm not you, you have to be concerned about some of this stuff because that is where you will get a, a sort of a wash in from the, the kind of big breakers of American politics into, into a kind of wider international arena. Well, I find that you know, the, the, obviously the context of the inauguration was the rather theatrical uh, riot uh, at the Capitol uh, just what was it, a couple of weeks ago now. But attacks on federal buildings have been going on for months. I mean, Portland the federal buildings there were the focal point for many of the riots in that area. And I understand the Democratic offices in Portland were attacked last night. Biden will have his own problems just in terms of the left uh, coming together, let alone trying to unite uh, left and right across the country. Yes, and Trump became a figurehead for a certain section of American society that's not going to go away just because... Um, Trump has left office. So it's not, although you would think that with the kind of celebration of him leaving office, that this was the start of America's process of 
of putting that behind them. It's, it's not necessarily going to work out like that. What are all these social warriors going to do without their bet noir? I mean, Trump uh, off Twitter, off Parler, largely silenced. Media are going to be bereft of, of morning stories uh, arising from whatever Trump thought was worth putting out on the Twitter sphere uh, as he conducted his ablutions first thing in the morning. I mean, uh, they're, they're going to be lost without that yardstick of how awful it could be. Well, that mindset, that identity politics mindset, it does need um, people to demonize. And I mean, that was part of the sort of process that, that allowed Trump to kind of surf a, surf a wave of popularity and, 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 um, and division and to come to power. So, I mean, they will, if Trump's not there, the social justice warriors, as uh, you know, like to call them, will, will be looking for more targets and, and it is more rather than this kind of almost cartoon that we had with Trump. I mean, they, they'll, they'll find it in more everyday discourse and, and things will get more divided still, potentially. You talk about social justice wars. Biden seems to have redecorated the Oval Office with icons of social justice warriors and, and has removed Churchill. I'm, I'm not that fussed about whether Churchill's in the Oval Office or not. I think he would be probably quite embarrassed to think he was in amongst all those uh, social justice icons. But it doesn't also speak to the uniting the country if your view of the country is in a very narrow political sphere. That's going to be his challenges. And those challenges are, of course, uh, going to be around immigration, which we'll come back, seeing as he's, he's basically reversing everything Trump was doing. Uh, and of course, COVID is going to be his big challenge. Uh, I read today he'd signed 10 more executive orders aimed at rolling back the virus. Well, if it was that easy, uh, if you could just roll back the virus with executive orders, uh, I think uh, that would have been done a long time ago. Yes, this will be what frames the start of his presidency, certainly. As you say, it's not necessarily as simple as, as signing orders or, or getting people to wear masks. So it will be interesting to see whether um, he can actually make a substantial difference. It will also be, of course, difficult to to gauge that. I think also because in, in North America, the debate is a bit more active. States have largely taken their own approaches. Uh, you've got contrasts in North America, uh, such as North and South Dakota sitting side by side, uh, one uh, taking very strong actions, one taking quite weak uh, responses as, as governments. Uh, and yet their, their uh, metrics, if you like, are, are largely the same. Uh, if you take California and Florida, either sides of the continent, uh, you've got California, which has been very strict in infection control. Uh, Florida, a bit more business as usual. And uh, yet again, their metrics are broadly similar. So it, it, it's going to be difficult to say one there is one solution here uh, or that the solutions that have been brought forward uh, or that Biden seems to favour uh, have been particularly successful. Yes, and on this side of the Atlantic, we've got almost a kind of sustained attempt to shut down any discussion about whether it is lockdowns that are actually having an effect or whether the disease is just taking its course or whether it's something else. Some third factor that, that, that's decisive here. From, from my sort of casual observations of the United States, it does seem that um, in fairness to that country that uh, it takes freedom a little more seriously than it now appears that we take it in the UK, certainly, certainly the rest of Europe. 
Well, I think I think on the on the, just on, in terms of restrictions and controls, and obviously coming out the other side, uh, we we talk about freedoms. Of course, discussion on whether the restrictions can be eased is going to be largely, I guess, framed in terms of the rollout of the vaccine. It was pretty outrageous to learn at lunchtime that apparently anyone within the health department can now get a vaccine, which means all those working at home office workers in, from PR and HR, and uh, they're open to go and get the, the vaccine. We had a fairly sensible proposal that you basically look at frontline workers, care workers, and then the people who were most at risk in terms of serious illness and, and potentially death. And that has always been, uh, even from the first lockdown, the elderly, particularly the over 80s, uh, secondly, over 70s, again, over 60s. Yeah, that's still a risk, particularly if you've got an underlying health condition. And it was quite sensible, it seemed to me, to have that uh, list of tiers where you had uh, those who were most at risk. Uh, and of course, if care workers are moving uh, between uh, you know, five elderly people at home, uh, mm -hmm. you wouldn't want that one care worker, perhaps between those five elderly people carrying a virus between, between houses. You know, th th there's a huge risk of infection there. I do not see the value in vaccinating a backroom worker in the health service when old and vulnerable people are waiting for the vaccine. I just don't get that. Yeah, I mean, this it seems quite baffling, and it's it's counterproductive too. And from being a, you know relatively good news story, where we seem to be well ahead of other parts of um, of the country, and um, certainly well ahead of Europe in getting in rolling the vaccine out. Now we've got this um, this story cropping up, and and uh, people are going to be wondering why their loved ones are. Uh, behind people who are not particularly vulnerable and don't work on the, on the front line of, of the health service. It's just a bit of a puzzlement to me as, how, as to how this has absolutely actually arisen at all. I mean, who, who um, sits and makes a decision like that? There's no science in that decision. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no morality in that decision. Um, but I think there's that muddled, muddled sense of what risk is. I think we have to go back to the primary risks that uh, the restrictions are there uh, to provide. One is, yes, it's spread of infection, but particularly to the, to the vulnerable, particularly to the vulnerable because it's the vulnerable that create the pressures on the NHS. And if you look at the numbers that are coming out of NISRA every day, you can see quite clearly that 80 plus percent of those inpatients with COVID are basically in the over 60 category, uh, probably about two thirds in the over 70 and over 80 uh, uh, groups. Yeah. So you know, you know where the vulnerabilities are, you know where uh, who is most likely to die because over 80% of those who have died, I believe, I think it's around 80% are over 75, usually with an underlying condition. The at-risk groups are quite clearly defined. They are those who are elderly, and we can take it over 60s because that's a huge swathe of people. Um, and we can say those with a secondary, you know, with, with, with an underlying condition, uh, mm -hmm. those are the principal people to be vaccinated. And given that our health department 
is I, I think there's some a hundred and some odd thousand people in that health department. There's going to be a lot of vaccines used on a lot of people who, quite frankly, could do without when there are vulnerable vulnerable people waiting. And I cannot see how it can be considered as anything other than immoral to change the original idea of the rollout. The moral and it also potentially um, it poten potentially slows down any prospect of getting restrictions lifted because I mean I, I'm, I'm worried that actually this isn't uh, the way that it's viewed now but if you don't ease restrictions at the same time um, as vaccinating then really you wonder what the purpose of the whole exercise is because we're supposed to be lifting the pressure off the NHS we're also I mean one of the reasons that we're going for for sort of cold face staff as well as the vulnerable is to try and get people back to work if you don't link vaccinations to easing restrictions, then I think your case that you're protecting the NHS through through this lockdown becomes very shaky. The other issue is, is of course, the build of cases that are going to come down the line that aren't being dealt with at the moment. The, the media has been full of Ed, Edwin Poots revealing that he's he's got kidney cancer and is having to wait for his operation. He's not the only one in Northern Ireland. And part of, of taking the pressure off the NHS is also to allow, allow the NHS to do its regular work with those who are vulnerable, but without COVID. I mean, that, that group of vulnerable without COVID seem to be also largely pushed to one side at the present time. Yeah, I mean, way back before this all started, David, we were quite frequently talking in this podcast about the state of the health service and the yeah. fact that struggling and the fact that waiting lists were enormous. We didn't know that this disaster was was coming down the line for the health service. I mean, I, I absolutely I shudder to think what state it's going to be in once we start moving toward the end of this. If, you know, if governments and health professionals and everything else ever allow us to consider that there's an end to it, because you know, but again, we've talked about this um, on numerous occasions. There's got to be a point where we have to say, that the risk of getting COVID is just one of those risks that we accept as part of life, like the risk of um, becoming sick with any other disease. Well, flu kills. There will be a flu outbreak uh, when people relax and stop washing their hands well, and, and, and covering their faces. I mean, just, just on that, my, my great apprehension with this whole thing is that, um, you know, I, I know that it's been an extraordinary um, disease. I, I, my, um, my wife works right at the the front line, and I mean some of the stories that she tells me are fairly horrific. But at the same time, um, I mean, I do worry that we're going to set up this almost uh, kind of ideology where if the the NHS is in trouble, is in um, kind of a seasonal way and and uh, a transmissible disease like the flu or an outbreak of COVID or whatever is is the problem that now what we do is that we lock people in their houses. And, you know, we, the, the problem with this before always was that Western governments in particular, the United Kingdom government certainly assumed that people would just not stand for this, that it wasn't possible. And I, I think there was actually a, a very interesting um, interview with uh, Professor Neil Ferguson. Yes. Um, and... I mean, he admitted the thinking on this, that when they heard about the virus coming over from China and heard what the Chinese government did, they had 
evaluated it and said that you know British people wouldn't stand for it, and they were actually surprised by, as he put it, what they could get away with. So the fact that now they've seen what they can get away with by terrifying people into staying in their houses and kind of generating this hysteria around it. And again, I'm not for a minute denying it or saying that it's not a real problem, but I think the the kind of high-pitched tone of the debate around it has not helped. Then, you know, why wouldn't this happen again if there was perceived to be an issue with the transmissible disease? It's just it's a it's it's a horrific precedent, and I worry um, that we'll be living now with uh, with not only the economic consequences, but with the kind of ideological consequences or the philosophical consequences of this for many many decades to come. I, I just worry about the inability of those in government to actually learn lessons from what has happened and to keep focus on what the actual uh, policy framework is all about. Uh, you know, the first lockdown worked because we protected the vulnerable, we shielded the vulnerable, we put a big emphasis on the elderly. Um, but that seems to be in loss where we're now protecting everybody from the virus when you really can't. The emphasis now is simply lockdown. There, there's no science there. There's no priority or understanding. And then we get to the vaccine where now they're giving it to everybody within the health department, not in any scientific uh, system or anything else. It's just simply they can. Um, and I'm worried about the lack of clear thinking within government. Well, maybe maybe I, I'm naive to expect clear thinking, but uh, I think it's desperately needed uh, in terms of moving forward or we will be in a perpetual fun. And as I say, my biggest concern is the other side, that if this is the thinking in this, in this uh, emergency, that basically that thinking will persist and we're going to be entering an even worse era coming down the line with zero capacity because we're still trying to deal with the the, the wake of the COVID situation uh, in the in the thousands who will then be waiting and possibly dying waiting on treatment uh, in the future. There's a lot of different things colliding there, whether it's the kind of lack of foresight and governance um, whether it's the thinking or the lack of thinking behind this and also the, 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 the petrifying of debate around it, the fact that it's just become unacceptable even to voice your doubts about it, really, with, in, in polite society. It's become um, a view that you're, you're not even really allowed to articulate in any um, fora and it, it, just, it would make you a little apprehensive about the future, to say the least. Well, it's like so many. It's like so many areas of debate that you can't enter out now because you're a racist, you're a denier, you're you're whatever. If you're you lock down. You want people that you may as well be going out and mowing people down in your car. Exactly. I, I think there, there's a closing down of discussion when we should actually be opening up because um, sunlight is the best remedy, as they say. Uh, yeah. in all things and i think we need a lot more sunlight talking about fuzzy thinking because uh, i got that we're, we're going to depress ourselves if we keep going on, on, on uh, nice segue. <laughs> talking, talking about fuzzy thinking the discussion at the moment on the inevitability of united ireland being imminent i have to say it's mm. imminent and um, i find this uh puzzling i have to say on the basis that i can't see any foundation in believing that a united Ireland is remotely 
imminent, e even with the protocol and all the rest, uh, I still find that those uh, issues uh, are in a very narrow sphere. I, I was bemused by Simon Coveney on Preston, suggesting that all the problems with trade were in Northern Ireland and were down to the protocol, mm. while uh, in Southern Ireland, um, the revenues IT systems uh, in terms of customs uh, have collapses twice a week on the basis that people are going in and just overwhelming it in terms of trying to work it out and understand it. Um, and that the hauliers in, in the South are, are going, you know, forgetting about their own governments and going directly to the EU Commission for a bit of uh, control. We look at these things in a Northern Irish way rather than looking at the big, broader world, as it were. And there really isn't any particular impetus towards United Ireland other than in the minds of people who are wishing and wanting it? It's a case of wishful thinking. And unfortunately, um, as is sort of so often the case, the, the cognoscenti of, of nationalism has kind of browbeat unionists into accepting this is on the agenda. And we had um, you know, G Gavin Robinson making remarks that weren't particularly uh, out there, you know, unionists can be thinking about how they would present their case for the union and making sure that all those things are in place just because they should be in place anyway, not because we believe that there's going to be a border pole down the, down the line. Because if you are, are sort of taken in by that rhetoric, it kind of ups the expectation and, and the case for there being one at the moment. There just isn't the data or the evidence behind that. It's not particularly on the on the agenda, but just a, a few very kind of noisy groups of, uh, of nationalist campaigners have made it so, plus this tendency among the, you, the sort of wider British commentariat to want to, um, to have a kick at the government, maybe the DUP by saying that this is now, that the, the UK is kind of crumbling because of Brexit and whatever else. And I mean, that doesn't stand up to scrutiny either. We've, we've had a couple of, we had um, George Osborne's quite sort of incoherent article the other day where, where as, whereby he sort of presented himself as the saviour of Scotland, which was, you know, quite a, a strange claim because I thought from my memory of the independence referendum that he and um, and David Cameron made a right hames of it and um, it sort of had to be rescued in the final couple of weeks. By, by making sort of unwise promises to the Scottish, Scottish nationalists, which were then whipped away from them and brought the whole agenda back round again. So he, he's saying it, there, people are getting excited about a, an article in the, the FT as well. So it's sure. just, it's kind of a baffling phenomenon. You forward me on the, the clip from the FT, which, which again, if, if, this is the, if this is the evidence from those who are proponents of United Ireland or even want to talk about United Ireland, um, I think we have to, you know, it's no wonder unionists are quite baffled at exactly what is going on, uh, because uh, apparently the whole thing is about coffee in East Belfast, I believe. Um, yes, but, uh, yes. The, the proliferation of coffee shops in East Belfast is a sign of, uh, it's a sign of the uh, disintegration of unionism, um, according to this writer in the Financial Times. So uh, make of that what you will. I, I tweeted out uh, that it was um, 
Chucky Arlata thinking. Well, I think and that just about sums it up. Um, you know, the, 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 this idea, I don't know whether he thinks that unionists don't drink coffee, whether uh, nationalists persuade them that a United Ireland is a better uh, outcome over coffee or just exactly uh, what he's trying to get at. But I mean, that's kind of the level of discourse that we're at. It's like putting apple, apple, apples and oranges into a basket and telling someone to take a banana. I, I, I just don't, I don't get where these, they're putting threads together and then coming up with an outcome, but there's nothing there that um, you can actually put your finger on. There's a lot of people talking up a United Ireland, but very few people are actually explaining what or how that might come about. I mean, it's just, uh, or what shape that would be. Nationalist, nationalist thinking seems to be entirely around it's going to happen, so you should just get on and accept it. It, it does, there's no real, there's no outreach to unionists in any shape or form in terms of this is why this would be better, because frankly, at the moment, I'm not seeing anything out there uh, that would improve my life uh, in, in the United Ireland. Yeah, it's this condescending attitude of this is going to happen anyway, so you must be involved in, um, in discussing it and uh, in, in kind of crafting how it's going to end up or else or else what you know or else we're going to treat you really badly is that the is that the implication so you know what what who responds to the threats or who thinks that that now forms an enticing case it's 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 baffling to me i mean i think you know, we're talking about the newspaper articles and beyond the kind of funny aspect of, of laughing about coffee and whatever else i think that they're sort of trying to imply that the DUP is a danger to unionism and trying to imply that because the DUP supported Brexit and then opposed the backstop that therefore um, the union is about to split up. But, part, but, a, but that's a very, sorry. Unionism is not the DUP. Well, exactly. Um, it's also, I mean, you, you've got to be accurate in your criticisms of the DUP and it's okay to say that um, they didn't, the, the, the DUP opposed every form of Brexit that they were offered, but they were only offered two forms of Brexit. Both of those forms of Brexit were treating Northern Ireland differently to the rest of the UK. As far as I know, I'm, no, I'm not a defender of the DUP because I think that they made uh, an awful mess of some uh, aspects of this process. And the, the, the only form of Brexit that they weren't offered and which they might have said yes to, which was one in which Northern Ireland was treated like the rest of the United Kingdom, but we didn't actually get to that point. So I'm not and, sure where- And arguably, arguably that could have been quite a soft Brexit as well, yes, which I think absolutely. is the other thing that many of those who are critical of the DUP miss. The DUP did not ask for a hard Brexit. They simply asked for a Brexit. Uh, and if there had been a soft Brexit, they would have had the broad support of a large swathe of the Conservative Party and quite possibly a large swathe of the Labour Party, then that would have been the Brexit that we would have had, most likely. The, the, the one scenario, uh, the one outcome or the, the, the one criticism of the DUP is just not the world as we live in. I'm sure we'll be coming back to this in the future, but there is this fuzzy thinking where people find a position and hold on to it rather than taking the breadth of where we are and what uh, we're actually discussing. Uh, and they simply get lost in 
almost as if that if they somehow give way or somehow have a discussion and accept a good point or for, from another side that somehow they're going to lose yes um i mean these things are self-perpetuating and um, they become a kind of a, a background chatter and because we're so immersed in social media it's very tempting and um, to kind of think that this is the real world and this is what we're dealing with but you've got to take a step back and say no this is this is not, I mean, I, I was going to say it's not what people are talking about in the pubs, but that's not a relevant uh, point at the moment. Oh, sorry, yes. You know what I'm it would be if the pubs were open, yes. Yeah. It's not what they're talking about uh, around the kitchen table or on Zoom no. calls or wherever they're doing their conversing. Obviously, this is a Zoom call. I can see you on the other Zoom. It won't come across on the, on the podcast, obviously. Uh, but uh, I know that you've been uh, dropped on uh, this afternoon with a sudden... Uh, about of yes. study daycare. So uh, I can hear the, the, the noise levels uh, rising in the background. So I think if it's anybody a has been, <laughs> If anybody has been distracted by the strains of go-jetters in the background, I can only apologize. <laughs> I think, I think we need to let, let, let you go back to your second job there, uh, Owen. <laughs> Thank uh, you, uh, And uh, we'll catch up again soon and see where we are. Great.